From the first video game to modern-day console wars, I'm Michael Bigler, and this is Level Up History. The first computer games were made as demonstrations for the public, so scientists could show off what they have been working on. But with Space War, games started to be developed simply for fun, and the idea that video games could be accessible to the public, maybe even sold for profit, soon began to spread. But people needed a way to play the games in their home. Computers were still too big and expensive for the public, so how were people going to enjoy games from home? Something was needed. A machine that could send signals to a TV screen so you can play any game you wanted in your living room. Today, we call these devices game consoles. You probably recognize a few names, PlayStation, Xbox, or NES being the most popular. Without these devices, we would need a rather powerful computer to play any of today's games. But what was the first console? To figure this out, we need to go to 1967, to a room in a military electronics company with guitar sounds coming out of it. There is some debate over who was the father of video games. You could say it was Steve Russell, the creator of Space War, as I mentioned, it was the origin of video games, but the game never went as far as the PDP-1. It wasn't in the public, and it became just a simple diagnostic test for the computer. The one who really got video games out there was a man named Ralph Baer. Baer was a stern and meticulous engineer with a background in radio and television design. He was born in Germany on March 8, 1922. Being Jewish, he and his family moved to New York to escape the grasp of Hitler and his Nazi party. In America, he took courses in radio and television servicing. He would then join the army during World War II, but was diagnosed with pneumonia three days before his platoon was sent to invade Normandy. A year after the war, Baer enrolled at the American Television Institute of Technology in Chicago, his first formal education since being kicked out of school in Germany. Graduating with a bachelor's degree in television engineering, he was offered two job opportunities. Baer took the offer from one Sanders Associates, a New Hampshire-based defense contracting firm, as the offer from CBS paid $5 less. Bear spent more than 30 years working for Sanders, managing a design department with a staff of 500. His first 15 years there were dedicated to military projects, but soon began thinking of another project, one that gave Sanders a few headaches. He began thinking of what someone could do with a TV set, other than just tuning into channels that you may or may not have wanted. And that was how the concept of developing video games began. Being the division manager, Bear figured he could pull a couple of employees away from other projects to work on his video game machine. He first went to Bill Harrison, a young and talented technician 
who was versed in transitor circuit engineering. After Bayer roughed out the concepts, Harrison did the implementation. They made a prototype machine called the Brown Box that would transfer the images onto a television screen. But the early video games they made lacked any entertainment value. The first they made was a simple game with a lever that, when pumped furiously, the player could change the color of a box on the screen from red to blue. And that was it. The early works were more about the engineering aspect rather than the game design. When they presented this invention to the board of Sanders, most of the executives felt that Bear was wasting the company's time and that he should pull the plug on the project entirely. The only reason the project was kept alive was because Bear and his boss were friendly, as the boss would come to play with their plastic rifle game where you shot at the television screen from the hip. To help their games, Bear needed someone that could bring an understanding of fun to their game. For that, Bear brought Bill Rush, another engineer who worked for the corporate IR&D director, on board. The problem with Rush was that he needed a bit of motivating. Bear comments that he was extremely creative and extremely lazy. To keep Rush productive, Bear allowed him to work on his own project, playing guitar through a box that would change the notes to the pitch of a bass guitar. But Rush made the games more fun. The first games made with their new partner were all two-player games, as Bear's machine wasn't powerful enough for AI. And sometime in 1967, Rush suggested a new game in which a spot flew across the screen and players would catch the spot with other spots. They had a great fun game that they began to call the hockey game, but sadly, Sanders couldn't just go straight into the toy business. They had a rough time in the late 1960s, having to downsize the company from 11,000 to 4,000 employees. If he wanted to get his game out to the world, he needed a customer that was willing to take a chance on his invention. They went to different manufacturers, but due to the depressed state of the industry, no deals ever took shape. But in 1971, a company called Magnavox arranged for a demonstration of the machine. They saw merit in it, and after months of working out details and negotiating, the contract was signed by the end of the year. Magnavox began production of Bear's machine and called the final project the Magnavox Odyssey. This is Odyssey, the new electronic game simulator. You attach Odyssey to your television set in seconds. This was the first ever video game console. It was an oblong white, black, and brown colored box that hooked up to your TV. You then put in the cartridge and then you were off. There were some games that came with the system, such as football, hockey, roulette, and other games that use simple dots and squares. However, due to the limitations of the times, there were no graphics save for the spots on the TV. To give the sensation of being in a hockey rink or on a football field, the package came with TV overlays that you would attach to the screen to get immersed in the game. And that was how you played video games on the Odyssey. The Magnavox Odyssey 
was a huge step for video games. Before this, you couldn't play a video game in your home. You had to go to tech demos at conventions or exhibitions if you wanted to play any sort of video game. But now, games were in your home, and you could have fun in your living room, all for the low, low, low price of $100. But this was actually a problem. Bear originally wanted the system to be sold for about $20. He and his team made strides to try to cut down the cost of production so it would cost his desired price. However, Magnavox over-engineered the machine, which upped the price to about $100. And you have to remember, $100 in 1970 is about $500 today. The console was expensive, meaning that it wasn't easily accessible to those who couldn't afford it. It also didn't help that it was badly advertised. Not that there were things wrong with the commercials. They helped showcase the system and did help with sales. However, you could only get the system at a Magnavox dealership, which made customers think that the Odyssey would only work on a Magnavox TV even though the commercial specifically said it could work on any TV. And some salesmen of the time even admitted they may have convinced consumers of this as well. The Magnavox Odyssey was not a commercial success and only sold about 350,000 units during its run. They stopped production in 1975. Though it would be difficult to find someone who remembers the Odyssey, its legacy continues today. While Space Wars was the start of video games in general, the Odyssey sparked the industry. It started the idea that games could be commercially viable. The cartridge system was revolutionary as well and would pave the way for the development of future consoles. Ralph Baer, his brown box prototype, and the Magnavox Odyssey in 1971 were the origin of the video game industry and consoles. If it wasn't for Ralph Baer and his desire to do more with a television set, we could be missing a huge part of the entertainment industry. So, I just want to say thank you, Ralph Baer, for everything. Ralph Baer died in 2014 at the age of 92. Rest in peace and know your legacy continues today. Michael Bigler here, thanking you for listening to Level Up History. Your support really helps the show. Tune in next week to learn about Pong and the start of Atari. See you then.